This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Oh, to introduce today's guest speaker, uh, one of our board members, the lovely Marlene, Mar- hello Marlene, <laughs> Marlene Hadju. It is a real honor to introduce Mark Isham. He's been such an accomplished solo artist for years. Um, his his trumpet playing is has he's brought his sound to over seventy five film scores, including uh, A River Runs Through It, Nell, Blade, Crash, Bobby. Not necessarily in that order. Um, and ASCAP recently has awarded him, by the way, this is amazing, the Henry Mancini Lifetime Achievement Award. Congratulations to that. <laughs> so today we're, we're going to have a question answer forum for him. There is a mic in the middle of the room, or if you so desire, just to learn out a question from your table. I'm sure he would take that too. And please welcome with me the Grammy and Emmy Award-winning Mark Eichen. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, everybody. I asked to remove the podium. I have did not want this to be thought of as a lecture, but perhaps more of a conversation. I was told we could start this any number of ways, and we were having interesting conversations before, the, uh, before eating. Uh, I can start with uh, how I got into this business. But then we can't ignore the, the interesting conversation we're having about electric cello, electric cellists living in my driveway. Uh, and we can't ignore the description I was giving about uh, how I try to force myself to arrange and write in different ways. But um, maybe we should look at this historically and just say that I uh, came up, was very lucky. I came up in a very musical household. My mom is a, still is a professional violinist. She played in the Olkin Symphony for years and then the San Francisco Opera and uh, still works in the South Bay in San Jose. And, teaches voraciously. My dad is a professor of, of uh, history and the humanities. So I was fortunate there was a lot of music around the house, a lot of art, a lot of culture. I went to a lot of concerts and I came, came into high school knowing that I was a musician. And of course my mother being a violinist had shoved a violin in my hand at a young age and insisted that uh, I see if I was cut out for such a thing. And I was. I was a concert master, a concert master of the uh, Youth Symphony at the age of 11 or something like this. But I could never get the vibrato. You know, I could play really fast, but that, uh, it killed me. And uh, meanwhile, she had drugged me to a, uh, a gig that she had, which was at Christmas time, playing the, uh, some Bach cantatas in a, in a church. And I heard the, the, uh, the D trumpet, the clarino, for the first time, and it changed my life. I said, well, this is, that's what I want to do. If I can give others the sensation that that trumpet and that music is giving to me at this point, that would be a life worth living. Um, so I insisted that uh, I be given a trumpet and the opportunity, and she said, okay, if you keep playing violin, you can also play trumpet. <laughs> and so by the time I was 12, I was still the concert master, and I was also the first trumpet in the band. And she came and saw me play the uh, second movement of the Haydn Trumpet Concerto that year and uh, said, okay, I give up. Uh, <laughs> you obviously have the passion for that and uh, the interest. And, uh, and that, that, so that was my, my uh, course for that next period of my life was sort of cast. And within a couple of years, you know, as you enter into high school, you start finding your own radio stations and your own interests. And um, I found a jazz radio station. That was sort of the next turning point for me because I heard Cannonball Adderley and... So that was Nat Adderley, was actually the, makes him sort of the first trumpet player that I, and Miles, of course, followed very quickly after that. And that was a road that, uh, a big road for me. Uh, it opened up mo- the whole world of modern jazz, uh, what improvisation is, what a music that can have the sophistication of 20th century classical music harmonically and rhythmically, and yet have this looseness and this wide open space that you can just be in present time and or actually you have to be in the future, as, as it were, if you're actually really improvising and your band has really got its stuff together. You know, you're living in the future up there on stage. And that, as soon as I sort of got that point of view, that you could have a, 
a musical experience like that, that was the next sort of thing that just grabbed me. I said, my God, that, there's no experience like that, you know, where you're just, you trust this group, you trust that the material is just enough and not too much, that you're actually creating the future there in front of an audience, and you're willing to trust yourself and your comrades to do that. So that's probably the next big benchmark experience for me, and one that I still value very highly, and I consider it part of my, um, well, part of the arsenal of points of view for composition. I still think that that, if you can capture what that essence of that creative moment is in, as a compositional moment, that there's incredible value to that. Um, so I'm going through high school and, uh, and playing in the jazz bands and playing in the orchestras and, and, and getting better as a trumpet player and more knowledgeable as a musician. And, uh, my mom's got me little gigs in summer orchestras playing at Gilbert Sullivan, uh, you know, opera companies and things like this and learning my stuff. And uh, I think the next big moment was my dad, you know, was teaching at San Francisco State. And if you guys are old enough to remember that, I think in the 60s, San Francisco State became this real um, focal point for the students informing the teachers what they really needed to learn. And my dad was uh, interested. He, he was not a radical by any means, but he was really interested in, in learning from the students. And, and consequently, I think he really opened himself up there for a number of years to what was really happening now. But of course, he is the intellectual. Uh, he didn't go to Grateful Dead concerts, but he did go out and discover that at Mills College there was this very interesting new music, and there were these guys named uh, Morton Sabotnik, guys named uh, uh, Bukla, Donald Bukla, and Moog, and these guys are doing really new stuff over there. And uh, he came home with this Morton Sabotnik record that again became another you know, focal point in my life. I put on Silver Apples of the Moon one day, and uh, again, just went, oh my God, this is like a whole nother universe of what music can be, um, what one can do to create an emotional impact upon an audience. Um, and from that moment on, it was like every you know, spare dollar I had went into the, some sort of little account to try and see if I could buy some of this stuff you know, that you had to have. Now, that, of course, this of course, opened up the whole thing about gear. This is another <laughs> cultural benchmark for the musician because all of a sudden, I suppose string players have always had to save up for a Stradivarius, but um, all of a sudden I'm saving up for gear. You know. <clears throat> um, I go into my, I go to college for a couple of months. It was ridiculous for me. I drop out, much to my father's chagrin, of course. But I remember him coming to a, a, a concert that I played about four or five years later. Where I was living in San Francisco. It was a beautiful club, actually not too, very similar to this, a very sort of high-end jazz club, and I managed to be playing with a pretty good band by that time, and uh, he got it. He saw me play, he saw what we were doing, and uh, he actually came to me and said, I, I got it, I understand why you didn't need to go to Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara. You wouldn't have gotten here if you had gone there. And uh, so I went through the, the 70s with uh, playing jazz, playing rock, being a trumpet player, professional trumpet player. Always sort of writing on the side, learning that uh, to explore this sort of Sabotnik Buchla world it was a tape recorder world. Uh, saving up, buying that first tape recorder. Talking uh, the Mr. Whitney of Whitney's Band Instruments to uh, selling me a, a uh, ARP synthesizer for $50 a month. Um, and just learning, learning. You're putting myself through my own school, my own school of experience. I'm playing, uh, at this point I was still still kept both my classical and jazz trumpet playing alive. I'm playing rock gigs, I'm playing jazz gigs, I'm playing third trumpet in the opera orchestra, I'm playing sixth trumpet under Seiji Ozawa in the symphony, which gets the, this is the cool gig because you do all the offstage stuff. You don't have to show up for hours and hours of rehearsal, but you get to still say that you worked with Seiji Ozawa. <laughs> um, even, you know, put on the body paint and played Aida. Uh, so th through this period, I'm, it's, it's, it's all education for me. You know, I'm, I'm doing gigs, I'm learning a tremendous amount, so that when um, a number of years later, uh, I do walk into and literally just sort of bump into a film opportunity, which I can describe. The uh, point I'm making, though, is that I was ready. I had a very, very thorough education, not only in classical music, because I, I had kept my interest alive and, and kept participating in it and, and read books on it, and, and uh, studied scores and things like that, but um, 
But more importantly, for me at the time, was just this love of electronic music, this knowledge of how it was built, how one constructed it, a real affinity for it, and then, of course, improvisational music. Um, so the actual first film experience was uh, one which uh, doesn't often yield the answer to how do you get into this business from young composers, because it's pretty rare. One of the projects I was working on was uh, a project attempting to take this electronic music world and blend it with traditional Chinese instruments. I had a very dear friend who was a magnificent jazz bass player, and that's where we knew each other from, but he also, his second musical career was the uh, Chinese flutes. And he played in, a, in this was in the San Francisco area, a you know, big, opulent Chinatown there, and he was part of a Chinese orchestra, and he really knew his stuff. He was, he was the real deal. Um, and we were very, very good friends, and we put together um, a series of three compositions that we developed together for basically, you know, uh, multi-tracked tape recording style electronic music with his gongs and flutes. And of course, Manfred Eicher had started the new music series at ECM, and, and both he and I had recorded jazz records for Manfred by that time, and we knew him, and we said, well, this is a slam dunk. We'll send this to Manfred. He'll be overjoyed. This will be perfect for him. And uh, so we were busy doing this thing, and uh, Manfred rejected it. <laughs> and uh, so we did the, the next best thing, which is, if there is a lesson to be learned about my successful action here, was we just promote it. We sent it out. We just made sure people knew it existed. Uh, those were the cassette days, so we would borrow cassette duplicating machines and sit in our bedrooms all night long and make, you know, <clears throat> make cassette copies. We probably sent out maybe 50 cassettes just because we were so proud of it. And, uh, and what's really interesting, of course, it wasn't my list of people that I sent them to that did anything for me. It was the list that he sent it to. He had been, as a flute player, hired to play on the Black Stallion. For those of you who remember that score, um, uh, I think Shirley Walker, I think, came in and redid a big sec middle section of that film and hired a flute player. Well, this was my friend Bill, and he played the beautiful bamboo flutes on those scenes on the beach with the horse. And so he sent it out to that group, those group of people that he knew through that experience. And sure enough, it fell into the hands of Carol Ballard. And uh, Carol heard this music and said, this actually is exactly what I think would be perfect for the film I'm working on now. And in fact, I'm just about to throw out the score on it. Um, who is this? Well, it's Bill. You know him from Blackstein. Yeah, but what's all that other stuff other than the flute? And literally, it was that um, small, a little reach, and obscure connection that put me in a screening room with, with Carol Ballard, who, um, after several conversations that I didn't even know I was being interviewed, <laughs> I was so naive. Um, he offered me a chance to demo some music. I sat over a weekend and learned how to run a cam. He cut three scenes on a, on a reel. And uh, I sat in a room with an eight-track tape recorder and a Prophet 5. And he, um, he left me on a Friday afternoon and said, I'll be back Monday morning. And uh, came back Monday morning and uh, played him three pieces of music to the scenes. And Tuesday, he hired me. It was a trial by fire. Uh, I had no training in film scoring. I only had the training that I had given myself over the last you know, 10 years. Um, and that's why I gave you sort of the background, because I was ready. In a sense, I was totally ready. I knew enough about, you know, I had known enough, for instance, to make myself an eight-track demo with one synthesizer that communicated exactly what it needed to communicate. Um, and it was interesting, of course, because I did it electronically. And here was a, a Walt Disney film about wolves in the, in the Yukon. That was the demos that he liked were electronic. And I think this scared the bejesus out of uh, Disney when they heard. But... Carol is a tenacious guy, <laughs> and he fought the good fight, and um, I was exceedingly inexpensive, and I'm sure that's what ultimately sold it. Um, so uh, uh, I worked the hardest four and a half months of my entire life. It was literally seven days a week, you know, 16, 17-hour days, uh, throwing vast quantities of material out. Uh, meeting with Carol every other day, playing him stuff. Uh, he did a very, very smart thing that actually made it all possible. He put two music editors with me, both who were composers and arrangers in their own right. Um, one who's since moved to LA also and become very well known, Mark Adler, and uh, Todd Bucklehide, who is, I think does mostly dubbing now, but both excellent musicians, excellent people, and basically handheld me through the whole process, taught me what I didn't, didn't know, and uh, got the music to fit the picture. And uh, 
that gave me a film composing career. I didn't work again for another two years because it sort of took me two years to figure out why maybe I should do this again. <laughs> I went back to being sort of the starving jazz trumpet player and playing rock and roll and uh, jazz gigs when I could find them. And then the movie came out, and you know I would see my name on the poster. And I said, well, maybe you know I. I actually made pretty good money on that, and they actually paid to have an orchestra come in. They paid for studio time for like a month and a half. I mean, when's the last time you had a record company that would do anything like that for you? And I went back to L.A. and uh, managed to get a, an agent at ICM, and that's pretty much history. I've balanced the two careers since. Uh, I've got to admit that the once you get four kids, the uh, touring <laughs> becomes less attractive. So the playing career has, has suffered quite a bit, I must admit. But uh, something I'm actually working on, which is one of the conversations that we were having, interesting conversations we were having over here. I think I've talked a lot without hearing from you guys. Anybody want to push this in another direction? Oh, sorry. The, the first picture was Never Cry Wolf. Carol Ballard, it was his picture he made after Black Stallion. And I've gone on and done uh, one more, did one or two more with Carol since then. At least one more. I did uh, Fly Away Home with him and actually met with him, started one or two other pictures and then things hadn't worked out but I've, I did fly away home with him he's a wonderful director he's a curmudgeonly old guy but he is uh... the great thing about Carol is he always fights that fight and, that's, and, and you can't ask for anything more in a director who, who finds something that they believe in and if, if what they believe in is you then they're your knight in shining armor I will always love Carol for the care that he took about nurturing me through that process and getting it done for me yeah I never try to ever position it as a fight and a struggle. It, to me, it's, it's my first job is to duplicate what the director's trying to say, all right? and then to supply the musical language that enhances that communication that they want to make. And I've actually gone go so far as to say that, you know, if it's not going well, it's, it really is my fault. You know, because my first job is to really duplicate what is wanted. Now, that means that if they say they want something that sounds like Shostakovich, that they may be completely wrong, right? But what is it about that Shostakovich that he heard in the car radio 14 years ago that changed their life, right? That they have to have in this film. Um, what is that that they're looking for? And it's my job to find that out, you know, to engage them in conversation, to engage them in, in playing things, in, in exper excuse me, experimenting with things, to find out what is it that they're really looking for, even if they don't know how to verbalize it. You know, and they may verbalize it so that it, it, it all is pushing you in a wrong track, and therefore it's feeling like it's a fight. And, but that's, it doesn't have to be. And that's the one skill that I know that I've improved. I mean, I'm a better writer than I was 15 years ago, but I'll tell you one thing for sure, is I'm a hell of a better communicator. Because if I weren't, that's where you don't survive in this business. That's where you start to feel that it is a fight every day, every project. And you can't, you can't go into it like that. I mean, comparatively, between that 15 years ago and two years ago, um, you guys hear the question we're comparing the type of relationship I had with Redford 15 years ago for River Runs Through It and my abilities then and let's say with Erickson Core who directed Invincible just a couple of years ago. Well that's an interesting comparison to talk about because at one hand you have Robert Redford who is an iconic figure in show business, right? As an actor, he's already an Academy Award winning director by the time he's working with me. So this guy's got some altitude here. <laughs> Erickson Core is a first-time director. Yeah, he shot a lot of films as a cinematographer, but he's never directed before. He's a first-timer. He's in his 20s. So it's a, it's a very different sort of type of relationship. But at the end of the day, my job is the same. You know, I have to duplicate exactly what it is that they're looking for. I mean, the situation with Bob was interesting because he had a score and he didn't like it and he was in the process of getting rid of it. Um, you know, convincing the studio, I need to rescore this picture. And he came to me and, and said, you know, I want to rescore this picture, and I think you're the guy. And quite frankly, one day after our first meeting, I, I, I had to know. I said, you know, you could have gone to a lot of, starting with John Williams, you could have gone to him, <laughs> you know, to rescore this picture. Why are you, this is 15, 17 years ago, why are you going to a guy who's just barely sort of on his way up career-wise? He said, I saw Never Cry Wolf, and that's, I want that sensibility in this film. So he had already seen something, right? There's something there that he knows he wants. So I just have to interpret that and find out what that is that's gonna match his film. And it came to me on that particular film very early. I remember seeing a, where he'd taken out uh, the previous score and had a temp in. 
And the tempo is all right. It sort of meandered all over the place. But in the very ending scene of the film, if you remember, it's actually a voiceover monologue that takes a lot of the Norman MacLean's words. And it, of course, Robert, up until the day they took the film out of his hands, thought he was going to replace his own narration. I mean, he always considered his narration of that film a, a scratch temp narration. And he had everybody under the sun come in and narrate that film. And he ended up with his scratch narration film. But the temp I saw was with his narration and a, a Jean-Pierre Rompal playing, I think he, I don't remember the album because I never actually got the album itself, but I think it was an album of Jean-Pierre Rompal doing orchest orchestrations of Irish, traditional Irish folk songs. Um, so it was flute and orchestra playing this, these Irish melodies. And I said, that's it. That's what this movie is. It's the simple folk music, but broadened out to be poetic. You know, and by orchestrating it broadly and taking it out of the folk vocabulary, it brings this whole poetic thing to it. It broadens it up to this almost, it's not an epic film, but emotionally it's epic. You know, the emotions are very big in this film. You're talking about very deep, it's a philosophical film. Um, and that was it. I mean, I, I, I heard that and said, that's what this, this needs. But the simplicity of that sort of melody, it can't, it can't be intellectual. It can't be 20th century writing with complex you know, interlocking. It just has to be very plain and just simply put, but in a very accessibly, just broadened out, broadened out. And sure enough, I mean, that's, I had five weeks to do that, the whole thing, from, from spotting to recording the last day. Um, so I knew I better pick pick a road in and love it <laughs> and stick to it because otherwise and just make it work you know and that's sometimes that's that's a good thing about having a short amount of time you're not, you you don't allow the luxury of sort of screwing around with ideas that may not be quite the right idea you better find that right the right idea and you better find it like tomorrow <laughs> yeah I did I found the right idea and I literally sat down and took took a week and just wrote six folk songs. And in these were the days, of course, when samplers were just beginning to sort of come into popular use, and, and there was no such thing as the Vienna strings. As the mock-ups were still just really rudimentary. I remember sort of finding the best patch of Korg strings on my Korg M1, <laughs> and going down to the, to the store and buying the, the expansion card that gave me a, a pretty good solo flute sound, actually. Remember that? The, the, on the Korg expansion 001 or whatever it was, there was a really good flute. <laughs> And quite frankly, it was that flute sound that got me through that project. Because <laughs> I could play that, and Bob would go, oh, that's nice. <laughs> it actually sounded like music. Um, and, that, and that was sort of it. I mean, that was... And Bob, tireless worker, unbelievable perfectionist, would come to the house as often, whenever I would want. Um, and then he, when he had to go to the East, he had one of the original car phones where you had to carry the transmitter box, and he would put it on his, on his seat, and he would talk to me from his car driving between New York and Connecticut. And literally, I remember this was awful, that I FedExed him a cassette. He's got the cassette in the car, and he's playing it, and we're trying to discuss. <laughs> um, which, which brings up just an interesting sidebar. I've always, because of the electronic music background, I've, I've always worked directly to tape machine, to computer, to, you know, the thing that can capture the idea and then play it back for me. Because that's part of, God bless you guys who can, who can actually sit down and write it down on paper and have the confidence you know what that is. But I've never been able to do that. I've, you know, as part of that thing in, in high school when I saw this music that was being constructed on the tape recorder, I said, this is really cool, and I've never looked back from that. I've never developed the skill to just look at the page and actually know with confidence that that's the music that I want to create. So the sequencer is like connected to me by the, <laughs> spiritually to the hip, the tape recorder for years. I mean, I'd invested in 25 tape recorders, 24 track tape recorders as soon as I could because I needed that feedback. I needed to put those things down. I needed to push play on the tape machine and play on the video machine and just look back and be the first audience to see that relationship between that image and that music and know. And then I could go and sell it. Then I could go and say, Bob, this really is good. You know, I'm willing to play for, for you. Um, Bob brought, uh, I remember he brought me some Sir William Walton CDs. Some, is there a piece, something about the sea, sea shanties or something? Or Scottish, Scottish something? There's a Scottish something, isn't there? Seascape, something like that, I can't remember. And said, I don't want the score to sound like this, but again, 
there's something in here. There's something in here. And I would listen. And it, it was. It's those sort of little moments where you have almost these iconic little melodies, little motifs. You know, they feel like it's a folk song that you've heard for your entire life. And it just floats out of the whole musical experience and just goes, ooh. And that's what that movie cried out for, and what Bob had isolated and I had isolated. And, uh, what was that I mean, movie? That was uh, never, um, River Runs Through It. A river runs through it. So compared to Erickson, core, invincible, first-time director, sweetest guy in the world, um, Mark, I need your input. I need your help. I've never done this. We're temping this. So I work. I sit down with the, the, the music editor. It was Joey Rand, wasn't it? Joey Rand. Great music editor. Um, help give some stuff to Joey that I think is going to define a vocabulary that, that I will... So when I deliver my music, it won't be way off from... But that's going to that's help the story. Um, Erickson also was just totally into songs. There was only 20 minutes of score, I think, in that movie. So it's a very, very, very different approach, just stylistically, uh, from a filmmaking style. Lots and lots of songs. Uh, of all the four or five games, we only scored in one part of one game, compared to other sports movies where the composer has to just you know, score every pass, every fumble, you know, everything else, every catch. We only started the score of that movie from the moment that the play became very, the significant play that was going to make our hero into our hero. Everything else was done through, you know, mostly rock and roll, if I remember. Um, so those are, the, those are the differences, but the similarity is it's still, it's, it's, a, it's a, a director who's the visionary. You know, he's been given the, the gig of visioning, envisioning this film, knowing what it's what it has to say, who it has to say it to, and the best, and being given the job of getting all the departments to contribute so that that film communicates as best as it can what, it, what it's designed to communicate. And my job is to get into that group and duplicate that vision as best I can and support it. Not to say that I can't help influence the direction it can go, that I can say, look, here's an idea that's completely different, let's try this. But it's, to me, as soon as it gets combative or anything like this it's not going to work let's let's just we're in this together let's make this work and despite you know what their personalities <laughs> may be of certain certain people in this industry i found that i can always do that and that's the skill that i really have uh, and i say it in all humility but i'm proud of that that i've because i've been fired i think we all have been <laughs> <laughs> gotten the, the pink slip from time to time. And I look back and, well, why was I fired? It was because I screwed that up, that exact point. I allowed it to become combative. And as soon as I, meant, I saw that in my own, from my own point of view of taking responsibility for that, I've never, I haven't been fired since. So I was going on 12, 13, 14 years or something. Well, thank you. I, I greatly appreciate that. I am so in awe of the caliber of musicians in this town of which you are a large force <laughs> that, uh, I, I mean, as a player myself, I just, I'm completely always come out of these sessions going, my God, what, a, what an honor to have you guys play, play my music. So, thank you. <laughs> I see a hand back there. Yeah, uh, when you finish getting approval for your taped demos or whatever you're working out, uh, how do you treat your relationship with your arrangers or orchestrators or copyists, or do you? You do it yourself, or do you? Oh no, I've, I've, I've from the very. I think because of my very first experience with Carol and having four and a half months to basically learn how to score a film, the last thing I could do was also learn how to orchestrate at the same time. Um, I had done some orchestration in high school uh, and I think in college, but and knew what I didn't know, and uh, so I had an orchestrator on that first first job, and I've always I've had orchestrators ever since, and. I like that. I like that it's, well, first of all, it's, it's, it's built into most budgets so that, you know, I can have an orchestrator. <laughs> you know, if I can have a talented orchestrator, why not? Why not have someone who, who has a, their own point of view, their own point of view of creativity that's much more knowledgeable about the possibilities and, and that whole universe of, of sound and uh, come in and look at what I've done, especially because I do, I don't write from the trained classically trained, orchestrationally trained guy on a score paper. I write from the point of view of a, you know, the guys at Mills College with a tape recorder still, and now, of course, with sequencers. But um, 
it's nice to then take something that works in that world, even if it's designed for a symphony orchestra, and then sit down with someone who, who lives slightly in a different world and say, all right, here's what I'm thinking, but I want what you can think of on this. And, and I find it just can elevate you know, what I would just, if I got dictatorial at that point, it would just, it would stay in this universe, you know, especially given the time constraints, you know, all of a sudden now we're recording in 10 days, Jesus, and I've got 80 minutes to put on paper, I mean, it's daunting. And if I go to somebody who is expert in this and creative in this, I can say, all right, here's what I thought. I, you know, I thought we should have eight woodwinds and they should all be playing 16th notes here, but I'll be damned if I'm going to put that into the sequencer. <laughs> but here are the chord changes and here, you know, how, how can we do this? Should the flutes be on top? It would be interesting to have the oboe on top. <laughs> you know, we can talk it through and we can create something. And um, So I, I value those roles highly and uh, I've worked with some of the best in the universe. <laughs> yeah. Over the years, it's, it's sort of bumbled around a bit. I think we have a pretty great system now. I have a fantastic assistant, Cindy, <laughs> who generally takes my MIDI sequences in Logic and goes through and makes them palatable to anyone else but me. Um, my sequences are interesting because my first job, my first point where I have to, to hit a target, make it, you know, to move up, move through the process is that play, show and tell with the director. So it's always been for me, but at this point in the history of our profession, I don't know anybody that doesn't have to do this now. You gotta play it, and it better sound great. Because it can sound great. <laughs> and people are used to sounding it, it sounding great. So that sequence that I've made defines the composition, but it defines it almost from a production point of view. You know, it sounds good. You know, the, the notes are there, you know, some phrases are left off because they sound like shit on those samples, right? Um, but there's things in mind, you know, there's notes in the sequence about what this should be like, you know. I've got the piano part separated out, you know, just because that piano patch, you can't hear the melody unless you, you know, just stupid production stuff, but I'm, my constant goal through those first, you know, three weeks, that first show and tell, I want to knock their socks off. You know, I want to turn down the lights, I want to get the 50-inch plasma, you know, with their picture up on there, and I want that, you know, great mix just to, and they'll go, yeah! You know, the right guy, the right score, and just, if we can start off like this, then this whole process is going to be fun. You know, and I don't have to reevaluate what have I misduplicated, what have I not got, you know. So, a lot of the time, that sequence that I have, well, the director will say, that's fantastic, you know, ship it, you know, we can dub that, you know, not quite done, you know, we can be better. <laughs> um, goes to Cindy, and Cindy will go in and just, and make it into something that now musicians can work with. Yeah, yeah. so it can, at that point, when she's done with it, it can be a MIDI file, it can be printed, it can be gone as a, as a printed sketch if that's what's needed, it can go into a MIDI thing, you know, for others in play. Yeah, and I do... I like to think that, you know, in terms of the de definition of these words, that I do the arranging. You know, I pick the melody instruments, I pick if there's going to be brass choir with an oboe melody, you know, all that stuff. I don't work out the string voicings unless there's a very specific fugue that I've worked out. You know, then I'll sort of split it out and, and sometimes, you know, I'll do it for eight bars and then I won't take the time to finish it. And then I'll sit down with Cindy and say, look, see what I'm doing? Do that for the rest of this piece. Um, and then she gets with Conrad and they take it. And then I like sending Conrad stuff early. Sometimes even before the director signed off just because I'm excited and I want to hear what he might think and say, look, this is what I'm going for. What, what else in this genre should I know? <laughs> what else should I be aware of? You know, what else would we do if we were to sell this idea that maybe I can bring in even now that will help define for the filmmaker, this is what you're going to be getting. Just discussing the budget, discussing what we what we will be able to afford you know unfortunately in the last couple of years it's always been this is what we can afford how do we achieve that on this money you know um, so I like I like the collaboration early on and certainly by the time the stuff has been signed off on Conrad comes over we sit down we go through everything we pull out scores of, of things that we feel are influences we talk through it you know if, if it's mo really modern string writing that I still having the getting the samples to hard to do bends and stuff like that, we'll sit and say like, no, we'll, I'm going to put it in the sequence so it looks like this, but this is what we really want, so anytime you see it in purple, <laughs> do that thing to it, you know? Yeah. Anything like that. 
Yeah. Mark, I was wondering on uh, the films you work on, as far as temp tracks are concerned, do you find that uh, are they usually helpful to you if the director is better or is it hinder your creativity? I've actually found that they're more helpful than not. I'm not, you know, I know there are famous uh, composers who hate temp tracks and I think that the one downside to temp tracks is the temp love phenomenon. Um, I mean, personally, if I, if I think it's a bad temp score, it doesn't bother me in the least, because then I know exactly what not to do, um, and I can discuss that very specifically with the director, and I can say, look, I don't like that. <laughs> what is it about it that you do like? Why is it there? And we can actually get to some pretty concrete answers pretty quickly if the temp is bad, in my opinion. If the temp is good, then I can just verify, you know, I think this is good because, is that why you, it's there? Yes, okay, good. So now we, we, we have some shared aesthetics here. Um, the one, temp love, I don't know, I get a, a director to critique it, you know. I love this piece, this is the greatest piece in the world. If we had the money, you know, we would license it. Okay, all right, well, so it starts with a flute. Okay, do you love the flute? Well, the flute's okay. What's your favorite instrument? Well, I love the accordion. Well, so it would be better if it were the accordion, right? Oh, well, yeah, I guess it would be. Okay, so then it goes and strings come in there as she comes through the door. Wouldn't it be better if it waited until you see her reaction? Well, of course, yeah, it would be better. Well, okay, so then, and you get, the time you get through that, you know, oh, this piece is terrible. It doesn't really work at all. You know? <clears throat> and it's, sometimes it's important to do that because the temp love thing can be problematic, you know. Um, but uh, that's technique that I've come up with to sort of handle that, so I don't really feel... The one thing about temps that can be just personally, I think, intimidating, uh, if it's me. And a lot of you know directors think they're doing me the greatest service in the world by putting all of Aishan's music is in the temp. It's perfect. He's the perfect composer. This is the slightly nightmarish situation for me, because what's, it's a problem. It really is good. Well, I've done it. There it is. I thought that was really... I didn't change it when I wrote it because I thought that was the way it should be. And now I have to do something just like that, but different, but better. That's the hardest thing for me to overcome. You know, I'd rather have John Williams' music in there being perfect <laughs> and try to be better than that because I'm going to do that slightly differently. All right? I'm going to have other solutions to the, to the situation. But I've already handled <laughs> that situation the way that I would handle it. And if it really is really good, Ah, yeah. So I, I, at times I've discouraged music editors from temping me, but then the other downside to that is that if your music isn't working to some degree in the temp, they may not hire you to begin with. I mean, that's one of the big things. Oh, we put so-and-so's music in the, in the opening credits, it works perfect, that's the guy we want to meet. And they don't even make a list longer than that. So it's a double-edged sword. So I figure, once again, you know, the best thing I can do is just get over that, just figure out, well, I have to do better than I did. I have to outdo myself again. And that's ultimately what I, what I do. Man. Ah. <laughs> no, that was it. It was like a 13-year gap or something. <laughs> oh, there was quiz show. That's right. We did... Uh, oh, we were both a little... I was a little grayer. He wasn't. <laughs> um, yeah, we did River Runs Through It, and then right away after that he did quiz show. And uh, I did that with him. And that was great, too, because it turns out that he was a jazz fan, and he used to hang out at jazz clubs in the San Francisco area, one that I did, and we may have even have, you know, been at clubs together. And uh, we along, and he actually told me after that that it was the best scoring experience he'd ever had, and they didn't hire me again for 13 years. <laughs> I, th I think he, he, he's, you know, the projects that he was doing called out for very specific types of music that probably worked in the temp, and he just said, let me try that. Um, I, I, I will, I'll admit, I chased him for Lions for Lambs. <laughs> you know, that's not the sort of thing that an agent can really uh, do. That, that's what I had to do that one myself and uh, close that. Um, but he, I think he was, he was, he welcomed me back really with open arms and was very delighted to work with me again. And I think that, that uh, I actually do honestly think that, that what a, part of what I'd learned and was able to, to put into a certain degree with him of just duplicating what he wanted and in a very easy, non-combative way, just keep delivering it to him. I think he remembered that and wanted that experience again. And then I think he just thought, thought I was the right guy for the job. Um, Bob is interesting because he, he is an actor and he speaks about his work very much as if he were directing actors. 
Uh, most of his instructions to me had nothing to do, especially on lines for lamps, had very little to do. Uh, he, he had no CDs on this one that he brought in with influences or anything at all. It was all about the arc of the film. Um, and that, that Lions for Lambs, if anybody's seen it, is very interesting because it has several arcs that are overlapping and, and the big problem with getting that film to work at all was, was how, do you, how do you keep leapfrogging these stories, keep it interesting, but keep them connected to themselves and keep them connected to each other. And so that was probably the big discussion musically is what can music do to help that? You know, how can we spot this movie and thematically structure it so that the guys in Afghanistan have something to do beyond the intellectual realization that, that you finally get that what you know, the senator is discussing is what's actually being played out in Afghanistan. But it might take you, you know, into the third reel to figure that out. What can we do musically to help establish this momentum that these, these different seemingly disparate events really are impacting each other right from the beginning and establish some sort of emotional momentum? So there's a lot of discussion about that. There's a lot of experimentation with that. And I brought a lot of material up to uh, Northern California and just left it in the Abbot so they could chop it up and put it around in different spots. Um, the ending was probably the big, again, he, uh, he, he turned to me. The editor on one of my trips up there said, I'm going to play you the ending because I think we're going to go with this. And it was one of those moments that directors you know, offer us occasionally where all the dialogue gets turned off, sound effects turned off, and they just said, it's all you. You know, it's just you and the image. Uh, those are sometimes frightening moments, to, and of course, tremendously challenging and uh, very rewarding if you get it right. <laughs> so, and this was one of them. I mean, there's a moment when when the heroes are facing their ultimate uh, challenge, and literally, if he'd left the effects in, you wouldn't have heard anything. There's just bombs going off and things being exploding and, and people dying, and uh, and he just turns it all off. And it's just these images of destruction, but. He said, no, we've got to stay with what's happened emotionally. So it's, that's your job. You, know, you have to keep us with you know, what Meryl Streep may be thinking. Even though she doesn't know what's happening here, this is what she's afraid of. So we have to remember that. We have to know what, this is what Robert Red character, the, the university professor, was afraid might happen. And, and that we, that's where we have to be, even though the imagery is completely different. And that's, I think, a composer's greatest, you know, you, you wait for moments like that and hope that they are, they're offered to you, and then you hope you're, you're, you're worthy of pulling them off. And um, so when I saw that, you know, I came back from that trip and was handed that as this is the way we're going to end the film. I literally put the rest of the score aside <laughs> and spent like almost two weeks just on that six minute scene. Because I knew if I get this, the rest of the score is just going to, you know, it's going to filter out from here, you know. But if this isn't right, then the, then the movie is probably not, you know. It's going to hurt everybody. <laughs> the score won't take shape. The movie won't have it, what it needs at the end. Uh, and he was totally supportive of that. And so once again, here's where, here's where the, the demo thing is just, uh, again, my sequence was a performance sequence. You know, and I just worked. Uh, I think the string parts that you ultimately got <laughs> were just unplayable. But they were what was needed to drive the samplers to give the impact. And I, I played this for Bob at the house. We turned off the lights and I just pressed play and played the last eight minutes of the film. And he, he literally turned around and there were tears in his eyes and he said, well, that's it. Yeah. But that's because I insisted. I was giving him, a, it was like a performance. You know, I, I put it to the point where I would, would have played this for you know, a room of people. I made it that, that good because I think in this day and age that's in my experience, that's what's needed. You've got to instill the confidence in the director that you've done the job. And we're at the point now where you can actually do that. You can give a you know, darkened room performance of this material and get someone who's watched this, lived with this film for three years and watched it 50,000 times and it's got to the point where he hates this ending and thinks he'll never work again as a director because of this ending, and then you make him cry. And I've done my job. The question is about my process, just uh, how do I start, how do I structure the, the, the start of it. Um, yeah, I would say I always watch the film at least once from beginning to end. Uh, I mean, presumably there would have been some watching out of it even before I'm hired. That's usually the way it goes. Um, and if they don't show it to you before you're hired, then you already have sort of a little red flag. <laughs> maybe this isn't as good as, you know, maybe there's something wrong with this picture they haven't figured out yet. Um, but yeah, no, I, I have to see it all because I want to I really duplicate what they're, what they're going for. I mean, 
And I'll watch it as many times as it takes for me to get that and engage as many conversations as I have to have, you know, to see what that... Um, and so consequently, when you get to a spotting session, uh, sometimes I'll want to watch the whole movie from the spotting session, even though it may make the spotting session two or three days long, <laughs> you know. Um, other times, I feel I've already got exactly what the movie's all about. We just we can jump around. I've already got sort of in my mind exactly what the, the job of the score is going gonna, is gonna to need to be. Um, so from that point on, it really sort of just depends on the score itself and, and how much I need to get into, more into the film or can I step away from the film and just write. Because the next big step is to sort of step away and just write material. And I'll just literally sit down for a couple of days and just, you know, got a folder in the computer named the film, but I'll just start number one, and then I'll just throw five ideas down, and then number two. Sometimes three or four different ideas in the same sequence, just fast. Because it's all, you know, creativity is not thinking, it's creativity, and it's instantaneous, and it's not in the physical universe, and the problem is always, how do you get that thing out of whatever universe that is into the physical universe so that you can then remember it yourself or play it for somebody else, you know? So I try to keep that technical side you know, I'm better at putting it in a sequence than I ever would be writing it down. Although, having said that, I would say on Lions for Lambs and on Bobby, certainly those two films in the last two years, um, I've sat down, I've done my few days of few rough ideas, thrown them up against picture. A few of them work in auxiliary scenes, but I don't have the theme or the one of two or three main themes I know I need. And I'll sit there for days and I'm sweating and I did, nothing's coming and it all sounds like terrible to me. And on both of those films, I get up, you know, kids buzz over, it's time for dinner, Dad, come on. Uh, and I'll go in and I'll sit down at the piano, which is in the house. And on both of those films, in the 20 minutes before coming back to the house for dinner and sitting down to dinner, I wrote the themes at the piano, getting out of the electronic and I keep a pile of paper and a pencil at the piano, just in case that happens. And it's, it happens more often, just because it's a change of environment, it's re interaction on certain types of themes that you're trying to find, interaction with an organic acoustic instrument, even though I'm a piss-poor piano player, still sort of the idea, you know, I can play that those three chords and they resonate together and they're resonating out of the lid is up and it's, I, I can get into it, you know. And the best piano sample in the world doesn't give you that experience. And uh, and that's just the factual reality. I mean, both the main opening theme to Bobby and the, and that ending scene for Lions for Lambs was written at the piano in the house. So I'm aware of that. You know, I'm aware of you know, take a walk around the block, pick up the trumpet. You know, stick stick the little clip on mic that I came next to the com computer on the trumpet and just play some melodies. You know, revise some melodies. Although I haven't done that in, in a while, but I, there was a period in my life when I did did a bunch of that. I like the piano at the house these days for some reason. It seems to be a fertile <laughs> choice. And for that reason, I don't put the piano in the studio. I keep it in the house. <laughs> Anyways, that answered the complete process. I mean, after that, it, once you grab those, those benchmark themes, you know, you know that those places, you've spotted the film, you know that you've got to really sell it here and you've got to sell it here. And, and structurally, you know that they can't be the same theme, so you need two themes. And so once those two, one or two things are in where I know that boy, this is pretty great, you know, I'm, I would go to the wall for this, you know, and if I orchestrate and record this correctly and dub it correctly, so that when I turn down the lights and we press play for the director, I know it will sell, you know, then I'm done with that part. And then it, then the job becomes more just structural, right? They need to be spread out, you need some action stuff here, you need a, you know, yeah, back. When you're doing your process and you're at the creative point of coming up with your themes, do you prefer not to have the movies playing on a screen, or do you prefer to be watching or while you're being creative? I generally don't have the movie playing when I'm actually writing the theme, no. I'm not a good enough piano player to sort of play it in time and play it in the right place and everything, you know. I sort of have to really eke my way through it, you know, note by note. And that's why I just turn the sequence around with, to 9,000 bars and just sort of keep poking at it until I get it enough. Occasionally, once I sort of learn the theme and I know that the theme is right, and I'll, and I'll say, you know, and I know that, you know, if I get this first 16 bars while he's in the room, and then when you cut to her, if I be at the second half of the theme, then I'll say, all right, I can play it well enough, and then I'll play it along, you know, try to play it in. It also depends on, on the type of theme, you know, I mean, that's, that's more of a, shall we say, traditional 
melody, harmony, a counterpoint sort of thing. If it, this is an ambient thing where I've got like two loops playing against each other and I'm just pushing play buttons and you know hitting hitting shit, you know, that triggers other stuff, <laughs> then sometimes I'll get more into a performance mode, you know, and respond to the picture because I can do that. I can hit stuff and trigger stuff. Yeah, Richard. Um, well, that's the basic genesis of it. I mean, Paul Paul Haggis loves. Uh, to connect his films to to a vocal in some way into some sort of a pop uh, a feeling of pop culture uh, and usually pretty esoteric you know nothing it's not like putting Mariah Carey tracks in there or anything and he he um, discovered Cigarus and uh, put they make really really long for those of you who don't know there's an Icelandic band which is a pretty interesting band um, I'm actually a big fan uh, but their tracks are like eight ten fifteen minutes long. <clears throat> uh, and he put one of these eight-minute tracks in in the uh, film, and uh, I looked at it and said, "Well, that's that's good. It really works." And there's some stuff here that that boy, it'd be good if it if it sunk up a bit differently. He said, "Well, take it." So I'd actually uh, put it into sequence and and started editing their track and edited the whole middle section, and then it fell apart at the end, and so I. I managed to lift some of the vocal out of the track, I think. I sort of went into remix mode. I lifted a little bit of the vocal out and then sort of rewrote the end of the track and put the vocal back in and then wrote the last two minutes of the scene with my own theme that came out of their song. And so we ended up with this nine and a half minute scene, right? That the first 80% of it was the Sigaru song that had been cut in the middle. And then the last part was this 30 seconds where it was me and Sigaru's together. And then it turned into me and the scene ended and it fit beautifully. And, and he played it for Sigaroos, and they said, nah, no, <laughs> nah, we're not going to be a part of this. Um, and, and we're, I mean, I think the score had been mixed. Yeah, I, I was done. I was done. <laughs> yeah, and Paul called me and said, help. Um, so I think he came over to the house one night, and we just, we went through the whole score, and I said, look, you know, you've already got like five themes in this score. I don't think you want another one. You know, we need to connect this. You need to make this, this is an eight-minute sequence. You need to make this feel like it's, you know, connected to the rest of the score, since it's not this other sound. So we went through and we sort of played music editor for a, for a night and took every big major chunk of score from the other sections and just played it and moved it around, and I tried cutting stuff together until we found the one that sort of made the most sense thematically. And then I sat with him, and so we placed it you know, all of the, this score was interesting. It might be worth a moment of just structural discussion because here's a, a film that is that is uh, well, pretty unique. I mean, it was very very hard hitting emotional film, right? And from the from the get go, um, Paul had a uh, had a temp score in there that would have cost probably a million and a half dollars to replicate. And needless to say, we didn't have anything even a tenth of that. Or <laughs> um, so. Already, we're looking for the, the really bright, clever solution of how to score this right from the beginning. And yet he said, look, the one thing I would really love to keep from the temp is this idea of woman's voice. You know, he had Alanis Morissette in there, and it was, it was great, but it was, it was huge. Um, he also had some Michael Brook in the temp. And so between this idea of a woman's voice and the fact that I, I pointed out to him, I said, look, look how well the Michael Brook works here. So there's an element of a more ambient approach that really connects to this movie also. I said, what I'd really like to do is find that balance. Let's just go from that premise that those first ideas are going to work. So I started off, and, and sure enough, I mean, I, I developed this sort of electronic music style that really seemed to connect to the film in, in a way that was somewhat unique because I just, we decided that we were not going to score specifically the emotions. We're not going to get into these really tough emotional scenes that we want the score to sort of sit above the whole film. And this was the sort of the conceptual decision. I think to this day it was really the right decision. I think it, it really adds tremendous power to the movie. And I think if you'd gone into some of those scenes and just scored you know, the, the humiliation, the degradation that you're watching and listening to, it would just would have been over the top. It would have been just too much to bear. Whereas if you have this sort of, something is sort of always just li lingering there saying, you know, yes, humanity has some serious, you know, aberrative behavior, but there's hope at the end of the day for, for these people. There's, a, there's something else can, can happen at the end of all of this. That it really gave the movie, I think, I think it was a very important part of what the movie ultimately could say. 
Anyway, it left me with this problem as I'm developing this of the woman's voice. And so now I'm looking, well, all right, I've got a, Cindy's a beautiful singer. I can put Cindy to work and see if she can, you know, I, I can cast other singers. I can, you know, what should the voice be? What language should they sing it? Who's going to write the lyrics? I mean, all of a sudden this is becoming like a, like a big deal. And then for some reason I said, I, I thought, well, let's just look at this completely differently. I remember that Moby record where he had licensed the UNESCO recordings of the field songs, right? And then written these beautiful tracks around, you know, pre-recorded vocals, and they had tremendous emotional impact. And they were so. Why don't we do that? Or at least I'm going to take a week and see if that has any validity at all. So I went and dug up a bunch of ethnomusicological libraries of folk music actually being sung, all cleared, <laughs> pre-cleared. I didn't want to fall in love with something I couldn't have. Just that was the prerequisite. I was not going to listen to anything unless it was cleared and free. Um, and sure enough, the first, very first time I heard this Welsh woman singing Leah Leanne, I think is the, the original song this came from, I said, that's it. I don't care what language it is. I don't care what she's saying. She could be, you know, shearing sheep in the lyrics. You know, it doesn't matter. There's something about the, which is exactly that choice Moby made and other people that have done this. I mean, it's not a new technique, but it's a technique. You're starting from the raw motion is already there. Right? It's the right character. The casting is already done. You don't have to worry about you know, all this other stuff. And now it's my job to, to fit it. And I found, I think, three or four performances like this in various languages. And it seems actually really sort of idiotic at the time. I never bothered to find out what languages they were singing in, what they were saying, and until we were done. And Paul was ecstatic. And I said, you know, I better find out. Maybe, you know, they're, maybe they're singing the war chant of the Mujahideen or something. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're going to be in trouble. Um, unfortunately, they were just, um, you know, dark and strange enough to fit perfectly. <laughs> Lost love, and then another one about nuns being ravaged on the River Rhine in the 12th century or something, <laughs> which was perfect for that scene. <laughs> but they're singing in Latin, so nobody would know anyway. <laughs> um, and so I went to work, you know, building the tracks and then just chopping up these vocals. And, you know, if we'd had Melodyne back then, it would have been a little easier, but we somehow made, uh, made it all work. Um, and so these became these focal points of, long story, these became the various focal points, the thematic points, high points of the score. And we went back to the Welsh woman and made her the centerpiece for this new cue. And, you know, given the time frame, I'm borrowing a lot from previous music, I'll admit it. But we're going through very religiously and finding out, getting, you know, just scoring now, scoring this eight minutes. And having learned a lot from cut, cutting the cigarettes and writing the piece at the end, I knew exactly what was needed, where the tent, where the bends and the turns and the left turns and the emotional were supposed to be. And I think we, we did it in about a, a day. I remember Paul came over to hear the first pass at, before dinner. He had some notes. He went to dinner. He came back and, and he approved it. Yeah. And um, that was it. <laughs> I'm actually working on records. I'm, I've... Uh, I get so pissed off at myself for not playing. And then when I do get the chance to play, I, I enjoy it so much. And then I say, well, I, and I've really f sort of, something's changed for me that I'm demanding. I'm not just saying, oh, wouldn't it be nice? I'm actually demanding of myself that I practice and that I play. And I've got two, well, a number of records underway. Get up every morning and I practice tr trying to get these tracks finished, get some performances that I can be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I've been very unforceful with my children about music. I personally think that, that people give up music because they consider it not fun. And the only reason that I do what I do is because it's fun for me. I like going in and writing music every day. It's really fun for me. Um, and so I've always been very open with my kids about that. It needs to be fun. I mean, yes, everyone had their piano lessons when they were a certain age. Um, and if it didn't work, it didn't work. And then we, we have them in a school where you're required to take an instrument for two, two or three years. And I actually talked my oldest son into playing saxophone. I just thought that for him, emotionally, if he tried to play trumpet and I was a trumpet player, it might be rough on him. He, he had very little affinity for the trumpet anyway. Uh, and it turned out he had no affinity for the saxophone either. <laughs> uh, he, of course, now has become a singer and practices all the time and we've got him with a singing coach because he really loves it and I now catch him on his own initiative practicing piano because he realizes that to become a better singer he has to know his way around the piano and that's the way I want it I want it I want them to have just enough exposure so that it becomes their own decision because if it isn't their own decision it's never going to happen now my middle son is a does play trumpet 
He's a very good trumpet player, but he is a athletic prodigy. And, you know, he's, he's on the varsity football team at the age of 14, and it's either that or band. And I said, God bless you. You should follow your dream. So he's, he's playing football. <laughs> and maybe when, when he grows up, we can play duets or something, if he has any chops left at all, if I have any chops left at all. <laughs> My youngest son plays trumpet because he's still in the mandatory period. And he wanted to, and his choice, because he wanted, not because I play trumpet, because his older brother played trumpet. And he wants to do everything that his older brother does. Um, but he's actually started playing guitar now, again, on his own decision. I want a guitar. I want to play guitar. And he's got the hair. You know. So he may actually stick with that, because he, he likes that whole mock-up. He likes that, that, that world. <laughs> so... And then my daughter, I think, is a little too soon to tell, but all I know is that every time she sees a microphone lying around the house, she picks it up. <laughs> so I think I have a diva on my hands, which is going to be, like, really rough. <laughs> yeah. The question is, is what effects does the budget have um, on the production and, and decision-making process of the aesthetics and orchestrating, arranging, and stuff? Um, well, it's definitely an issue that you have to address. Like the example with Crash. I mean, he literally did have pieces of music in there that would have cost you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to record and produce, and there was not a chance that movie could support that music budget. I like to think that under those circumstances, I came up with a solution that was actually better than if we had had a million dollar budget. Because uh, I personally think the score to Crash is exactly the right score for that movie. Um, and I, I want to say this, so that you, given the fact that if you don't have the money, I think it can challenge you to come up to be more creative and to not go for the immediate solution that works all the time, which is to do something that costs a certain amount of money, and you do it that way, and you do it that way every single time. Um, I've just scored a, a romantic comedy for Diane English, and again, no money, upfront about it, you know. Um, and again, it sort of forced me to just to say, all right, I don't want to sell this short. I don't want to do a fake pizzicato string score. <laughs> so let's come up with a better solution. What's, what would be a better solution than pizzicato strings anyway? Because if you ever find me doing a pizzicato string score, you can shoot me in the foot. <clears throat> um, but um, again, I like to think that I came up with, just due to certain restrictions, a score that has a unique flavor that is true to itself stylistically and that really serves the film very, very well. Those are examples of when that worked. <laughs> I also have a couple of examples where it, it nece hasn't necessarily, there hasn't been a solution, right? Um, it happened in a sports picture, which we've just recently done, which, you know, I always look back and say, well, where did I, you know, where's the point, point where I wasn't responsible enough? The point where I wasn't responsible really enough to, to have made this gone better than it did was that I probably should have walked away from the picture, unfortunately, because they gave you, me a budget that, to really do what the director wanted, I would have not paid myself anything. And I refuse to do that. I value what I do. And on a package deal, I have set rules that I'm going to pay myself a viable fee out of that package, or else I shouldn't be doing this. Um, and that left me with really not enough money to do what, and I fought with the studio all the way through the writing pick process and basically lost. I got a couple of bucks at the end more. But what they needed was three times more. You know. And they, they weren't willing. They weren't, just were not willing to do that. And it was, it was my, I, there was no other solution. You know, the temp was what it was, and the director wanted what the temp was, and I shouldn't have taken the gig at that price. We ended up doing, I think, a score that when you go to this and see this movie, you, you will enjoy it, and you think the score will sound great. But it was a tremendous amount of work of how to get that production level on that budget. And it's just, it's, it's hard. It's hard, hard, hard work, unless you, you know, have that bright idea of the other way of doing it. If you have to go with the traditional way of doing it and you don't have enough money to do the traditional way correctly, it's just hard. <laughs> There's no way around it. I don't know any other way around it. You, you, solutions like cheaper musicians start to enter on your list of solutions, and this is just hideous, you know. Or take my kids out of, you know, I can't pay the school. You know, I mean, it's just awful stuff. You don't want to, you know, that's not, this is not what this creative decisions should be about. So, I try to avoid those situations, and like I say, I mean, I went back after experiencing this and said, well, what should I have done differently, you know? I should have at least fought at the time before agreeing to do the picture for more money. Or should have said, all right, forget it, you're just not getting an orchestral score. We're going to have to score this electronically, and, and there's certain things you're not going to get because of that. So that was, you know, 
for my own future reference, I just have to be totally, I have to do my homework. I have to look at that temp. I have to budget out what it would cost to replicate that temp. I have to look at that package deal. I have to make sure that you know somebody's not going to get screwed, the score, me, <laughs> or the film. So. But I always look for the better solution. I always look for the creative solution. All right, this is the package. I understand. You know, a movie like this has, you know, the finance guys have got this done to a science. You know, a movie like this starring this person is going to make this much money. And they're right. I mean, 99% of the time, they're totally spot on. So, and this is how much money we can spend. I totally get it. You know, it's not that it's, you know, I disagree with, you know, but directors don't always, you know, haven't always thought it through. You know, all of a sudden, they've got a $2 million score in their temp and nowhere close to that in the budget. And then the problem comes down to us to figure that out. How do you do that? Oh, we're done? I guess we're done. Well, I should just... <laughs> it's been my pleasure. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.